0: I played for years in an informal basketball league that included some very good players and some pretty bad ones like me. It was called the jungle because its ethos involved an unusual level of comfort with the destruction of other players, either physically or psychologically. If you could play three days a week in the jungle and live to tell the tale... um, Actually, I'm not really sure what you got out of that, but you got something anyway. Uh, One of the best players was Dick Fairbrother, who held the all-time scoring record at Wesleyan University. Fairbrother was a master of the withering remark. And over the years, there were two or three times when he would respond to somebody's ill-conceived shot or missed defensive switch with the words, A sense of where you are, Colin. That's the title of John McPhee's book about Bill Bradley. Fairbrother had become a dentist in later life. He wasn't much of a reader. I think he used to even say that was the only book he'd read in years. But it's a testament to John McPhee's economy and eloquence that his six-word summation of this fundamental truth of hoop got spat out on the floor of the jungle. And so as we prepare to talk to John McPhee today in connection with his new book, Draft number 4, on the writing process, it's on the one hand worth noting that, yes, so much of what he's written, so much of the truth, of what he's written is incorporated now into our understanding of the world, whether we were aware of digesting it or not. And on the other hand, there are, I I did this experiment on social media. I put up a post saying, I'm going to be recording an interview with John McPhee. He absolutely is the writer's writer. So those of us who are writers know about him, people who are readers of The New Yorker know about him. How much explaining do I have to do to the rest of you? And there were other people who said they needed to know that he wasn't the bass player for Fleetwood Mac or other areas of confusion. So with that in mind, John McPhee began contributing to The New Yorker in 1963. He's written more than 100 pieces for the magazine including, yes, a profile of Bill Bradley during his days as a Princeton basketball star, hence a sense of where you are. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for his Annals of the Former World, which is a massive examination of American geology. And he's written about just about everything else that you can imagine. One of the things that uh, defines a John McPhee story or book sometimes is that notion of the complexity behind the simplicity. So he can write a book about oranges, and it's fascinating. And in many respects, his spirit informs a lot of what we do on this show. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later, although this is not a show about this show. It's a show about John McPhee. So lengthy introduction. John McPhee, welcome and happy to have you here. Honored to have you here in connection with draft number four. Thank you. Nice to be here, too. I'd certainly like to begin with, I mean, there's so much to talk about. This is a book about how you write. It's very much about... Uh, some of the techniques that have resulted in the, these remarkable pieces of writing. There, there's a lot to talk about. The first chapter is all about structure. I'd like to leap ahead of that and talk about something that that I'm always intrigued by among people who do literary nonfiction or the literature of fact, or, or which I think is what you, you call it in, at, in your course at Princeton. And that's the question of disappearing. It seems to me one of the things that you have to do so often in these long pieces is ultimately cause people that you are interviewing and writing about to achieve a different kind of comfort level with you, right? If you're going to be with them for days and days and weeks and weeks and try to get out of them things that are other than their prepared script for dealing with reporters, you have to disappear a little bit. You have to become somebody else to them. Is that a fair statement? And if so, can you talk about how you do it?
1: It's certainly a fair statement. And it's where, I mean, it's an essential thing in in my work, it's why I'm flabbergasted with the admiration of the daily reporters who can go out, get a story, get it all together, write it, and submit it all in in one day because I usually get nowhere in one day, and <laughs> but I hang around. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, people let me hang around, and I'm there a long time forming first, second, and third impressions and scribbling notes and just – watching people do what they do. And I think that they get sort of used to me and then they go on doing what they do. I would much prefer to be in a pickup with a ranger somewhere than across a desk from the same ranger just trying to do an interview. Is it also sometimes the act
0: of you doing certain things? In other words, if you're going down a river with somebody and you're the two of you are pitching a tent or whatever it is that you do, sooner or later you become that person who's doing those things in the other person's mind, as opposed to this person who's trying to extract precious information from me.
1: Yeah, if I'm on a on a journey with people, and I mean, you're your intense as I have been on various occasions and everything, sure, that's that's so. You're participating in the thing. Together. I want
0: to talk about the way that—I I think one of the things that distinguishes a, a McPhee piece, although it may be a little bit deceptive to say this, is that we're famous for a reliance on simply telling the way things are as opposed to any kind of advocacy journalism, this is the way things should be, or isn't this terrible? You, you tell the way things are. And, and I think part of the notion is that the thing perfectly described will speak for itself. So here you are. I'm just going to just to help the the listeners kind of get a a memory or a flavor of McPhee. You're describing a tugboat. I think it's called the Billy Joe Bowling. It's pushing a lashed together series of barges, as you say, a good deal longer than the Titanic toward a lock on the Illinois River. You write, gingerly, you inch your 30,000 tons up there past the bullnose. If you are heading downstream and you come in at too much of an angle, your head can become wedged between the short wall and the long wall while your stern is swung around by the current, with the result that your vessel becomes a lever, prying at the navigation lock until the masonry breaks, wires snap, loose barges are draped all over the dam, and your Billy Joe bowling, whatever it may be called, is hanging on the brink and listing. (laughs) <laughs> I, I want to tease, I want to tease that apart a little bit. Can, can we? Can I first of all ask you? Okay, that's written in what we might call the second person, second person narration. You do this. You ensure. Right. So wh- why write it that way?
1: Well, I spent 16 hours a day on, on that project, uh, standing in the pilot house of the so-called towboat. It's really shoving the thing, and um, the I'm there with one of the two river pilots who traded off, and. Uh, I got to know them very well and they told me exactly what they were doing all the time and so it was easy to uh, or it felt comfortable put it that way to slip into the second person and and describe this as as if uh, the reader is piloting the towboat. I did that once in a in the cab of a Union Pacific locomotive. And with the same thing. I wouldn't just try to do it if I hadn't spent so much time standing there learning from him exactly what he does.
0: What do you want the reader to think about this?
1: And by that question, I mean, do you want them to
0: think, wow, this is just a really interesting thing? And it's that, once again, McPhee style of the complexity of the thing that people think of as simple. Or is there... A bigger message. I mean, you're by using the second person to you, you're asking us to inhabit the skin and the life and the dangers and the risks of this person. Is there something you want us to think about? All that?
1: That's not a primary motive. I think it's interesting, and that the reader would be interested in it. I'm interested in it, and secondary thoughts about the philosophy of, of it all, <laughs> or the, or the, you know, the meaning of it is uh, should be, in my view, in the eye of the beholder, of the reader, not not the writer. I don't want to tell people how to think. But I I think it's, I mean, I'm often called a environmental writer and so on and so forth. And I certainly have my biases in this direction. But my idea about the way to describe that sort of thing is directly and simply and let the judgments be in the mind of the beholder of the reader, because I think it's more effective that way. And I, I think there's a little more Craft in it, a little more artistry, maybe.
0: Yes. Well, absolutely. I mean, any sentient reader who's reading this is going to say, as we often do reading your work, wow, these jobs that make up kind of the landscape, the backdrop of America or our lives, they're harder, they're more complicated, and they're more dangerous than they look. It's just stuff that we don't really think about that much. So, so they're going to do that. But I, I'm going to try to be John McPhee and, and push at you a little bit more about this. Because I see in a lot of this, kind of almost Walt Whitman's insistence that we look at each other. Ultimately, if you read a lot of John McPhee, that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're looking at other people, usually other Americans. You're looking at them in a way that you ordinarily don't. Yeah, I know that you you want to step away from the notion that you have any kind of overarching philosophy. But would you at least plead guilty to that to that notion that you want people to see each other?
1: Well, I guess so, sure. But the thing is, I don't go get in my car or on an airplane because I want to go make people see each other. I, <laughs> I, I go I go out there because I'm doing a a book. I'm doing pieces of writing, all of which relate to freight transportation, mm-hmm. and I get an opportunity to go to the Illinois River and get on a towboat and barge rig and or to the Union Pacific uh, train and so forth. And and then I soak up what I can soak up when I'm there and I write a story trying to show a reader what it's like to be there and the, the kind of philosophy that you're mentioning c- comes in after that mm. it, or is just built into it from the start without uh, – uh, but I, I really would avoid anything that uh, smacked of a sermon.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I was going to I was obviously trying to get you to do one, but that's fine. We'll yeah, we'll do our own sermons after we read your work. <laughs> There's another part of this, too, that I think that I can get you to talk about without uh, it being a sermon. And that is, although let me quote a divine, uh, I think uh, Emerson said something to the effect that we have shielded the, the dining table too far from the slaughterhouse. And it seems to me in a lot of the work, one of the things that you're saying is there's this whole bunch of realities that undergird the way that you live. And so here you are writing about uh, an orange juice plant, factory or a refinery or whatever you want to call it. You actually say they more closely resemble oil refineries than auto plants. The evaporators are tall assemblages of looping pipes quite similar to the cat cracking towers that turn crude oil into gasoline. And you know as I read that I'm I'm thinking you know, A, you're trying to tell us a little bit about the substructure that we don't see of our lives. And I'm also aware of the fact that I had to go look up what cat cracking means because I'm so shielded from the substructure of my life that I don't know what catalytic cracking is or how vital it is to the process of making a refined petroleum product. And do you ever feel as though we, the average person just doesn't know enough about this kind of stuff that you could just go through life not knowing what cat cracking means?
1: Oh, no, I think you can go through life quite happily not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> what cat cracking means i think that they have, i think that i'm i'm hoping that somebody that reads this thing would be interested to learn that and in whatever context it is the to learn about the concentration of orange juice uh, which isn't as prevalent now as it was once i mean you know canned frozen orange juice is not a not sort of as ubiquitous as it was back then.
0: Well, okay. Well, I will. Uh, I will now stop trying to make you into any kind of moralist. <laughs> so, but but then that raises the question of how it is that you came to do what you're doing. A lot of that is answered or at least hinted at in this book, draft number four on the writing process by John McPhee. First of all, you didn't start out writing for the New Yorker, or didn't did, did you not write for television for a little while?
1: Right. Correct. In the first place comes the impulse to be a writer. when And I was very young. I was, I was one digit old, you know, when, when I began to feel that. And as they go through your teenage years and all that, you you don't know what kind of writer you are. William Shawn, an editor of The New Yorker back then, used to say that uh, it was taking young writers longer to figure out what kind of writers they are. So, and I don't quite follow all of that. But... The notion I'm trying to get to is that you need to learn this empirically, to learn what kind of writer you are by doing various forms of writing. Mm. If you tell yourself as a result of being in an English class that, that you're a poet or something, go write the poems. Don't tell yourself you're a poet until you've written the poems and when they're lousy, throw them out and then do something else do a novel, do factual writing. And I did did all that. I wrote awful poetry when I was in my teens, and I wrote some fiction. I wrote nonfiction all before graduating from college. Then the first professional job I had actually, or or, or thing I undertook to do, actually happened to be writing uh, plays for television, adaptations of stories and, and original plays. And I I did that for about a year and I was successful at it, but this was in the era when television had shows that went on for 50 minutes and ended and the sets were struck and <laughs> that was it. It wasn't a series. But I, I learned there that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. There were I wanted to make the whole shoe, not to have the casting director, the director, and the actors and actresses take over and so you 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 kick around when you're a younger writer is what I'm saying, and i I've, I feel very, very lucky that I settled down in a niche where, where I'm comfortable, where I feel that I for all my complaints about how tough writing is, I think I'm writing the the thing I'm best suited to write.
0: So presumably, Robert Montgomery presents uh, the man who vanished, and in a foreign city no longer exists for our delectation
1: no they don't and they, that's actually right and uh, they were both based on those two were both based on new yorker short stories the kind of you know two page short stories very short short stories by robert m coates and uh, i read them and i thought you know you could make a little play out of this and i talked to him about it and That's what I did.
0: As long as we're dwelling back there in the past, I feel as though I also need to know about the person known as Johnny McPhee, who appeared as a panelist on 20 Questions in in 1949.
1: Would that have been you, too? That's me, and I did that for the four years I was in college. The the people who owned and appeared on that show lived in Princeton, New Jersey, where I did, where I grew up, and I went to high school with their son, who was on that show when he was in high school and all. And he went off. He's my age. He went off to Duke and had to leave the show to do that. And I replaced him temporarily, but the temporary part was lasted for four years. So I was I was on that uh, show. It was a radio show, and in the first fall, it became a television show. this is right. This is real beginnings yeah. of TV. It, was it a pleasant experience? Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a you know, it's a parlor game, 20 questions, mm-hmm. animal, vegetable, mineral. And, and I had played this game over and over again with Bob Van De Venner, who was my predecessor in, in high school with me. And so I was sort of equipped to go on into it.
0: You know, uh, obviously, you're, you're best associated with The New Yorker. The New Yorker is known for many different things. For somebody like me, who grew up wanting to write about humor. Um, the New Yorker was initially known for the, the great New Yorker infield uh, of, of Thurber and White and Perelman and Liebling. And as I read your stuff, it's interesting. Jonathan McNichol is producing the show. He and I flagged exactly the same line uh, in draft number four, the, the new book, where you're talking about this teacher who made you do three pieces of writing a week. And you say, Mrs. McKee made us do three pieces of writing a week. Not every single week. Some weeks had Thanksgiving in them. That's a that's a really nice little dry joke. Do you think of yourself as a funny writer? Is humor part of what you see uh, as the McPhee style?
1: If humor couldn't be part of it, I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah, I'm not trying to write humor. I'm trying. I think that the hardest genre of writing there is is writing what Sandy Frazier writes. You know, and and Cora, the short, one page thing that says at the beginning, this is funny, mm-hmm. and you better think so, <laughs> and, and then we, and then you gotta be, the first two or three lines are funny, but you got a whole page to go, and you gotta keep it up and invent things that, that work. And I just think that's so hard, I can't believe it. And uh, anyway, in, in my case, I've got the matrix of a long piece of writing about the towboats or whatever, mm. and the humor the humor rises. It just rises, but I hope it rises pretty often because it, I certainly wouldn't be doing any of this if I couldn't be using those, if I couldn't react to those situations.
0: I think also you're helped by the fact that people, I think, are essentially funny. And you spend a lot of time with people. You spend a lot of time listening to people and people who don't think of themselves necessarily as comedians. They think of themselves as people just trying to get through the day in whatever job they have. I don't, I don't know about you, but I often find them very funny.
1: Don Ainsworth, truck driver, big 18-wheeler, you know. He's funny all the time. Mm -hmm. And I I went – I rode across the United States from one ocean to the other with him. And he just – you just write it down. A lot of the humor in that piece is coming from Don, not me.
0: I was in a minor car accident on a mountain one time and – so a tow truck came from my car, and I was sitting in the tow truck with the tow truck driver, and another tow truck showed up. I guess they had not made it clear. They'd called too many. And meanwhile, all the traffic is kind of coming down the mountain and kind of swerving a bit around this, the scene of this minor crash. And uh, my tow truck driver got on the radio to the other tow truck driver, and he, he just said, Just stick around, Bobby. You'll get something.
1: Uh, <laughs> Right. Sounds like a quota.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. You know, I mean, people are basically funny. But you're right. When you announce that you're trying to be funny, you've got some other problems that come up. So in this book, one of the things that you talk about is what happened when Woody Allen started writing for The New Yorker. Roger Angel uh, was the person fielding these pieces. And he actually suggested, and this is an almost McPhee-like observation that maybe we'll come to in terms of your work, that you didn't want too many jokes. He actually said there were too many funny lines in the piece. Uh, what did he mean by that?
1: Let's say hypothetically you've got, you've got four buds of humor lined up close together in, in something you've written. And if you took two of them out, the other two would, would add up to more than four. That The propinquity of too much, too many separate examples of humor do a little bit of canceling each other out. And I mean, this is an insight that I think is so true and so worthwhile that Roger Angel passed on to Woody Allen. And and Woody Allen, I think, uh, took the stuff out that Roger suggested in order to enhance what was left. We're talking right now to John McPhee. His book is Draft Number
0: 4 on the writing process. We'll be back after this. We're back. We're talking to John McPhee. His new book is draft number four on the writing process. There are an awful lot of people who write for a living who want to know what John McPhee's writing process is because he's been doing it so much better than most of us for so long. I want to come back to this notion, John McPhee, of of who you are in the writing of the piece. And I think it's fair to say that most of the time, not only while you're researching the piece and getting people to forget that you're a reporter and tell you things, but when you write the piece too you, you you fade more out of the picture uh, as a character most of the time than most writers is, is first of all, is that fair and second of all, is that part of a writing philosophy?
1: Yes, uh, in both cases and I don't think I fade out so m- much as never there in the first place and <laughs> uh, often enough it depends. I mean I have an idea that I don't think the writer should interpose him or herself between the reader and the material, the text. and the writer, Here's an example I'd like to mention if I can tell this story, and that is that I wrote something called the Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. It was in three, it was a serial in three New Yorkers, sixty thousand words long, about an experimental aircraft that was developed in New Jersey. And the pronoun "I" appeared in the original manuscript once, in sixty thousand words, suddenly, way over near the end. I pop into the scene. Why? Because an engineer who had a Cessna, when this aircraft finally got itself off the ground after 58,000 words, this, this guy with the, jumped into a Cessna and I jumped in with him. Now, what are you gonna do? I mean, if the airplane goes up in the air and I'm suddenly describing something from 1,000 feet or whatever, it's weird. So I had to say I got in that airplane because it was necessary. And it was the only place in the whole manuscript. And my editor, Bob Bingham, he says, there's one eye in this whole thing I can't be. And anyway, he insisted that I put a second I in <laughs> in the 60,000 words, and I went back and found a scene in an Exxon station somewhere and put it in. I think to, to carry it one step further, I think the writer should be present if it, if necessary, but not because the writer is seeing him or herself as a prominent part of the story. So
0: I'm… Just- sitting here next to my copy of draft number four on the writing process. There's no jacket photo of John McPhee. You've done your work in an age when a whole bunch of other people writing nonfiction went in the other direction, right? The insertion of themselves uh, as characters, in the case of Norman Mailer, uh, the um, insertion of their voice, their constant, I'm trying to think of the right word, but Tom Wolfe, and he's right, he never lets you forget that Tom Wolfe is writing this piece, even if he doesn't identify himself in person. And, and David Foster Wallace, who came on later, who who's a attempted a kind of conversational style where once in a while, once again you are constantly aware of this particular person talking to you. It's not your
1: style of writing, is it? A style of reading that you can enjoy as a reader? Yes, <clears throat> I love reading Tom Wolfe and in, in those, but but at the same time, you know, different strokes for different folks. I I uh, prefer. That my pieces not not have the presence of the author so prominent.
0: I want to talk a little bit about something that you talk a lot about in draft number four, which is just what it's like to write and whether or not it's a pleasurable experience. There's a long description of you lying on your back for a very long time on a picnic table, mm-hmm. <laughs> like some kind of Jules Pfeiffer cartoon <laughs> or something. And yeah. there's a st- and that that is your visual picture of a thwarted writer, a writer, either a thwarted writer or maybe a writer waiting for something, some message from heaven, metaphorically, right? I mean, just what's that feeling like when you've got – that's that was the case where you had so much material, you didn't know where to begin with the material.
1: Exactly. And so I was stymied, blocked by the fact that I didn't see how to get it all together. It was so miscellaneous in nature, that particular story and so on and i th- i think that a certain amount of block something i mean writers block is a really serious condition for someone to get in and i'm not talking about that per se but i'm i'm my thought is that a little touch of it occurs in everybody a, a lot like each day when you go to transfer yourself from the walk around world sit down and go into the world of your piece of writing whatever it is that transition is difficult. One of my favorite images about that is Joan Didion mentions this, and she mentions sitting in her living room or somewhere and looking over at the door to to the study in which she writes. And she's just out, you know, in the the rest of the house, and she looks over and she sees this door and she feels, quote, the low dread, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think Something like that besets writers very often, and I mean, you know, with me it's daily. You you spend the whole day trying to get through that membrane, and then write something, and uh, so uh, so bad. I don't I don't I don't think that you that I, I think that that occurs with with most writers, and it, certainly with me, and it it occurs most of all in the in the course of writing the first draft which is the, so difficult. And after the second draft, when I get into the third, and particularly the fourth, which is, you know, a lot easier, I, I enjoy myself, but I don't enjoy myself in a first draft. And I've had first drafts take a, one year, for example. <laughs> I guess I wasn't much around the house. Roy Blunt Jr. one
0: time suggested that what writers need are like coveralls, the way you know people in, in working professions have, that you know, you'd put those on and maybe your name would be stitched over one of the breast pockets. It would say John. <laughs> and, and that when you had your coveralls on, that would signify to you that it, you would be working now. And it would also signify to other people in the house that you're not available to repot plants or whatever it is that the other people in the house want you to do. But the, the, somehow or other, we have to get the message to ourselves as writers that, all Right, right now, just like a plumber, we're going to go do our jobs. But there, so, why is writing different from that? Why, why can't we just go do our jobs?
1: I don't know because I, I, because of what I think I mentioned about the the different world that you're trying to go into. But but Blunt's coveralls and everything is a very appealing image. And <laughs> the thing, the, the fundamental thing about that is whatever works works right. if, if you have to put on coveralls and a lamp on your head do it <laughs> do anything i mean i knew I, I knew a guy once who actually wrote with a quill pen yeah and and so on i mean it's just anything that gets you there i mean is a fundamental point that i'm trying to make in my book that i am giving all these ideas but if if i thought that but they don't universe one glove doesn't fit all and and uh Anything that gets you from A to Z, take it.
0: Right. I think Franzen went through a period where he would blindfold himself and put earplugs in and like do all this stuff to create almost an isolation chamber so that he would have no distractions whatsoever and be totally isolated. Well, one of the things that you get at in the book, I think, is there's this odd – knife's edge that I think writers run their thumb down all the time, and it's the agony and the ecstasy of writing, right? There's, I mean, you write uh, if you lack confidence in setting one word after another and sense that you are stuck in a place from which you will never be set free if you feel sure that you will never make it, and we're not cut out to do this if your prose seems stillborn and you completely lack confidence, you must be a writer. If you say you see things differently and describe your efforts positively, if you tell people that you just love to write. You may be delusional. Uh, and, and I don't know how literally you meant that, but th- there's a way in which I think writers are, as you say, second or third draft. You're really kind of, uh, I, I think a lot of writers are happy you know, in in a moment where words are beginning to come together, you find the perfect way to describe a person or thing that seems so much better than what you were using before. And it's always there right on that knife's edge next to this incredible agony.
1: Well, the passage you read, I, I certainly meant that literally. <laughs> and... Uh, you often hear, you know, that the the craft is in revision and so on and so forth. It's a it's a kind of and and I believe it to be true. I mean, when you when you've finally gotten on paper everything from the lead to the finish, and and in some form or other, however crude it, and rough rough hewn it is along the way, you have managed to to lay your material out in some form of prose from. One end to the other, and that's the that's the first draft. Then you go back to the top and look at that and go through it after a day or so and you really see one thing after another after another that you want to alter in ways that i don't know I feel in the end are a hell of a lot better than the <laughs> the thing I had there in the beginning.
0: You begin the book with a really lengthy chapter about structure. It's been in the magazine also, and uh, it involves diagrams of ways to structure prose and and almost these uh, algebraic formulas for the ways you're going to try to set up certain kinds of uh, of interactions. I know you teach, you taught writing forever at Princeton. Do people Get that? Is that a hard sell to young writers to say, yeah, really, the first thing you've got to do is think about how you're going to structure this
1: story? They seem to take to it. In 1982, Joel Achenbach, the great Joel of the Washington Post and so on and so forth, he comes to me after the first class. He's hovering around outside the door and he says, I don't do structure. <laughs> and I said, I, I, I said, Joel, try it for try it for one semester. You could. And uh, anyway, he's he's. Uh, I think he tried it for one semester and and a great deal more.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, but
1: but they seem they seem to take to it. And I get. I mean, what I always say about this is, as Mrs. McKee did to us in in Princeton High School, your structural outline that must accompany everything you do, even even if it's fiction can be in any form you choose, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of basic Roman numeral one, two, three. But it can be anything from that to an elaborate doodle. And I always bring that point across to my students because the elaborate doodle is probably, probably going to yield more. And they turn in some of the most amazing conceptual drawings about the pieces they do. Really, the little Steinbergs, they, <laughs> little drawings like that. Anyway, they they all turn in a structure thing, a structure outline with each piece of writing.
0: Do you find uh, that when you're writing about people, as opposed to say geology? Although when you write about geology, you wind up writing about people too. But when you when you're let's say you're working on something that's a little bit more of a profile. Back when I wrote profiles more, I used to have this idea that if I hung around and hung around and hung around, I used to call it the magic key moment. If I hung around forever. Sooner or later, the person would hand me a key, and it would could be almost anything, but it amounted to some kind of Rosetta Stone for kind of decoding the person, you know. And maybe, maybe it was I remember a songwriter, a kind of a pop songwriter, who suddenly told me that her favorite play was King Lear, and I just thought about that and thought about it. I thought, well, that's a, that's a good way to tell your story. It actually explains about fifty things that I've been trying to understand about you. Does it Does it work that way for you? Are you looking for? the person to kind of hand you some way of unlocking their story?
1: No, I mean, I don't resonate with that as uh, during interviewing, waiting and waiting for that. But what I'm sure happens is that one or more of those things comes along and it very much influences the ultimate structure, the arranging of after you've done your interviewing and your note making, the arranging of the material. Would would be tr- little trigger points like that 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 you're mentioning would occur. I mean, in uh, encounters with the arch druid we're going down the Grand Canyon with David Brower and we go through a a rapid, a number ten rapid can't be run without risk of life. It says in the guidebook <laughs> and and uh, so forth. And Brower walked around the rapid. He he. It was too much for him, and he didn't go through. And Dominey, who was making his trip with him, the big federal dam builder, and so on, says to him at the end, "Dave, why didn't you go through the, why didn't you, why didn't you go ride with us through the rapid?" And Brower says, "Because I'm chicken." And so that particular story needed to be where it was in this narrative, but details of Brower's life could go anywhere, mm-hmm. and it is a detail of Brower's life that he had something like 36, whatever, I don't remember the number, first ascents of peaks in the Sierra Nevada, a rope and piton climber clinging by his fingernails to some crag, and where to put that? That could go anywhere from the front of the ultimate book to the end. It went right after the upset rapid with a little white space in between these two sections. And that's the kind of thing I think you're talking about. it's a real key that a lot was said in that white space and about the whole piece. That was the first part of that total structure that where those two things came together. Because in the space between them, there's a lot of comment. He chickens out in the rapids. He clings by his fingernails to the crags. I don't know. I don't have to to spell it out.
0: No. And also that it takes a certain kind of courage to say that you're a chicken in that situation. And he has Uh, a a, a tremendous amount of courage. I mean, a demonstrable, quantifiable amount of courage. At least that's what I I got in that white space anyway. That's right. That's right. We're talking to John McPhee right now. We're going to take a little break. We're going to um, do a final section with him. The occasion for this is draft number four on the writing process by John McPhee. Let's take that break and then we're going to come right back.
1: I tried to write a book about an orange, but the orange wouldn't talk to me. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is swimming in the Mississippi River. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jackie Gleason. And now, back to Colin.
0: We're talking to John McPhee, a legendary writer of nonfiction. Uh, he's not actually an actual legend, he does exist, but he's a legend to many of us who've tried to do the same thing, but maybe not as well. His book about the writing process is called Draft Number Four on the Writing Process. You know, As this book comes out, John McPhee, there are ways in which it – I don't know. It almost reminds me a little bit of the book that you did about the merchant marine, which you were doing kind of at a time when the people who'd done that job were finding it harder and harder to find opportunities to do that job. It's about people literally looking for a ship. And that these days, the way the writing profession is – The kind of opportunities that you had seem harder to come by. The likelihood that any magazine editor is going to say to any writer, take as long as you need to just get it right, which was the kind of thing that Sean might say to you. Those opportunities seem less and less available to writers. I don't react to that a little bit. Maybe you
1: don't see it that way. Well, there's several things that listening to what you're saying, I mean, it's uh, absolutely true that that. The amount of space that Sean had versus what David Remnick had, has is quite different. And uh, the, the long serial pieces don't appear much anymore. My most recent one was – Remnick wanted to run one. And the, the one about the Union Pacific Railroad that I mentioned was mm-hmm. – ran in two consecutive New Yorkers. So that world is sort of definitely gone, gone by. The way that many of those pieces though, came to me were just happenstance, really. I mean, I, I've only reacted to in my in 50 years to positively, that is, to two letters telling me what to write about. Mm-hmm. As, I mean, one was from a sailor on a merchant on a merchant ship in the Gulf of Mexico, and he, the things he said, caused me to call him up when he got home, and I went to Maine when he was on the beach, you know, and, and uh, I uh, went off in a merchant ship with him. And D- Don Ainsworth, a truck driver, read this piece and writes me a letter saying, if you're gonna go out there on the ocean with them, you should come out on the road with us. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back to him and said, tell me what you do. And in terms of, he, he, he owned a chemical tanker and he went around taking hazmats and other things here and there all over the United States and in Canada. That's how those two pieces came about. Would they? Would that happen now? Yeah, but I think the pieces would be shorter. But my son-in-law, Alexander Stella, developed a, a whole series of pieces about artifacts in the world and, and, and the, the pyramids and so forth, and what would become of them. And he did this in separate pieces because of this tendency of, of magazines and so forth to shrink, and so so instead of writing a three-part piece going on forever, he wrote a piece on the pyramids and a piece on something else. And he called his his book, all these fragments put together were about a common theme, and he called it the future of the past. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> there's <laughs> a good idea. And so that those transportation pieces were, because Sandro <laughs> had done that, I thought, well, this you could do this with these transportation pieces. They don't have to go on forever. You can... You can write about the towboat in the uh, in the Midwest and the, the the train that I mentioned and so on. They, they all ran in uh, in 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 one book, but uh, which was my plan. But they were very separate pieces uh, in the New Yorker over a period of time to cope with this thing. I think about this problem all the time because I'm teaching sixteen young writers every spring, and and they're going into this world where where they need to cope with the problem of publication. And I don't have any kind of full thing to tell them that it'll, it'll be a magic key at all.
0: I'm bargaining with my producer right now for how many more questions I can ask you. He says two, I say three. So I'm, I want to go back to what we were talking about before. And I want to posit that or stipulate that uh, you don't go into one of these pieces with this notion that you're going to make a difference or impart a moral or – who, Correct. Or uh, what did <laughs> Louis B. Mayer say, if you want to call, send a message, call Western Union, that yeah, that you're not right. doing. Okay, having stipulated that, do you think your pieces have made a difference? Do you think people read what you write about the
1: world and, and that things change? In some instances, yeah, I could just name two. The mm-hmm. Pine Barons, Brendan Byrne, the, the governor who caused the preservation and The state and federal laws or whatever to come together to create the preservation of the New Jersey Pine Barrens always attributed it to – or a lot of it – his interest in it to uh, my book called The Pine Barrens. Uh, The Pine Barrens are very much like the Adirondack Park situation, um, vastly smaller but still a a kind of uh, state and there's private land in in the region and so forth. But anyway, that, it had that influence. And the other, coming into the country was about Alaska. It was about, it was at the time when the pipeline had just been created when Ala- and the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act had been passed uh, to accommodate the pipeline. And so it was a vast shakeup of, of uh, land in which... Alaska, the state itself, got a modest portion that was about the size of California. And uh, the, the federal government kept such and such, and the natives, the rest. And this is when I was up there, and there was a lot of controversy in Alaska, over the pipeline, over development versus conservation, and so forth. And if ever there was a time, when I, I spent a, three years on this project, and I Did not want to be stepping in and saying, think this way, Mm -hmm. vote that way. But I would hope that from the material that I wrote, somebody could be informed about this, and I believe that they were. I think it had I know that it had some influence here and there about I can't mention chapter and verse because I don't really know it. It's not as simple as the Pine barons.
0: So let me give another example and have you react to it. So uh, encounters with the Arch Druid, which is uh, we just talked about it before in connection with the white water thing and being a chicken, but th- this is a, a, your deliberative attempt to set up these kind of Socratic encounters between an environmentalist and three um, uh, men whose goal is in one way or another to transform nature for profit. Um, and, and so um, I'm Going to read um, a McPhee piece. Uh, this is uh, involves this guy, Brower, that we were just talking about. Uh, and he's on some kind of a massive, well, you'll see this yacht belonging to this guy who's sort of a developer. Um, and it's, uh, it goes the following evening. We transferred our gear to a motor ship called the Intrepid, which had slipped quietly down the coast from Hilton Head and into the Cumberland River. The size of Fraser's yacht was proportionate to his distaste for wilderness. The yacht was 90 feet long. It contained five staterooms and a floor-through saloon. Its bar was stocked with Tanqueray gin. Fraser's southern antennae had reached out unobtrusively, Supra socially, and their research had shown that Tanqueray is Brower's gin of gins. So now I would make the argument that one thing that can happen in a McPhee piece, particularly something like this, is you know something that a theologian would call agape. Maybe this kind of recognition of humankind's generalized. Uh, love for one another, or appreciation, or you know, use whatever word you want for that. That there's a way in which these guys who are totally at sword's points about it, like what's going to happen, what's going to happen even in this part of the world, somehow or other. Are having a kind of human experience, which at least makes the wealthy developer guy want to make sure there's the kind of gin that the environmentalist likes. And at the end of all this, Fraser didn't do some of the things he could have done, right? And I'm wondering whether it's because of this kind of recognized moment of humanity.
1: Well, he certainly recognized that Dave liked uh, Tanqueray gin, <laughs> and uh, which he did. I was very surprised in, in that in that encounter at the extent to which. Dave was sort of uh, mellow and cooperative and and so on. He was much feistier with uh, the two other antagonists that we put him together with. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's shared humanity, all right. But, I mean, I think Fraser was pretty fairly uh, crafty and <laughs> reminds me of Donald Trump having the, re- the de- Democrats over to the White House for dinner.
0: A last
1: philosophical
0: question for you. Are you a declinist? And, and, and I, I think specifically about human beings. So Vonnegut really hated and feared humankind. He'd call them. I was with him one time when he was talking to a bunch of high school students. And he said, mankind is like a syphilis on the face of the earth. You know, the sooner we're gone, the better. And you saw their little faces kind of crumple. Um, <laughs> and... and uh, but I, I, you know, reading you, I'm not. I mean, I sense, I sense a kind of love uh, of humankind and an appreciation of humankind. Occasionally, a hopefulness. But there's also quite a bit in your work about what we do to the planet. I, how do you, how do you see people in the last analysis?
1: The the, the opposite of Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> the the uh, who, whom, whose stuff I really loved, but. Um, yeah, no i i have uh, i have very very positive vibes about people generally. My producer Jonathan McNichol wants me to ask if
0: you have a, a new project on the burner somewhere.
1: Well, yeah, I have a, a actually a, a book that'll be it'll be a collection of uh, miscellaneous pieces, and uh, still another book.
0: All right. Well, that's good to hear. And John McPhee, what a thrill uh, to get to talk to you uh, after all these years. And and the book that occasioned this is draft number four on the writing process. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. been a great pleasure. It's a thousand pages, give or take a few. I've been writing more in a week or two. I can make it longer if you like the style. I can change it round and I want to be a paper bag writer Paper bag writer